Well, hello, and thank you for joining us as we continue our study through 2 Corinthians. Today we are in the 8th chapter of 2 Corinthians, and I am reading out of the New Living Translation of Scripture. I find that using this translation keeps it fresh for me. It's not the translation that I'm most familiar with, so it it helps me stay focused on what the text is actually saying and listen to what God's Word has. Well, as we begin, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we, we seek your voice. As we study your Word, we ask that you would open it to us, that you would give us insight into what you are telling us, that you would give us hearts that are responsive to what you are speaking. And Father, as we study your word, help us to be drawn closer to Christ, the embodiment of your word. Lord, help us to hear what you have for us in this text, that we may be challenged by it, that we may be drawn closer to you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ and his atoning sacrifice, buying our way to salvation. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, let's get started. As we dig into the eighth chapter of 2 Corinthians, I can't stop myself. I have to backtrack a little bit. We have been, as we've been studying through 2 Corinthians, looking at a series of chapters that are really a digression for Paul. He started out dealing with some issues at Corinth that he was concerned about, uh, some that he had addressed in the first letter to the Corinthian church, others that seemed to be things he challenged that were going on in the church, maybe in a, a second letter that we don't have. And he makes reference to that letter in the first parts of 2 Corinthians. And then we get to 2 Corinthians, and he's dealing with some more of these issues, and he's anxious about the response of the church at Corinth. And in that anxiousness about the response of the church at Corinth, he digresses into talking about the apostles and other believers and their foundation in Christ and what they are willing to, to sacrifice or suffer for the sake of others, for the sake, in this case, of the church at Corinth and of the believers at Corinth, what they have endured to see them come to faith in Christ. And now Paul has traveled first to Troas and then over to Macedonia in eager expectation of meeting Titus as he returns from Corinth, having delivered that other letter. Now we pick up with him having met Titus. And Paul begins to change his focus. Now, they're in Macedonia, northern Greece, and they're about to part ways again as Paul sends this letter that we are studying down with Titus towards the church at Corinth. But the issue he turns his attention to in the eighth chapter is the issue of the offering that the churches, particularly Gentile churches, had been taking up in support of the Hebraic or Jewish background Christians that were still in the area of Jerusalem, and they were suffering. They were suffering financially. They were suffering in lots of ways, but this offering was going to help them, and we'll unpack that a little bit as we move 
further into the text. So let's get past the recap and really delve into what the text has to say. As Paul starts chapter 8, he says this, Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. But they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. What's he talking about? Well, the churches in Macedonia were not wealthy, and they were undergoing quite a bit of persecution. Uh, Philippi is one of the key churches in that area, and we can read the letter to the church at Philippi. We can also look at the accounts over in the book of Acts about what was going on there. But he's using them as an example, saying, look, here we are. We're in Macedonia. There are churches here, and they are being faithful to give in support. They are filled with abundant joy, and it is an overflowing joy, a joy that produces not just not just joy in their salvation, not just security in their belief. It is a joy that moves them to action. And part of that action is to manifest the generosity that they have received from God. And so Paul's holding them up as an example. Now let's keep going in verse 3. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than we had hoped, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. Verse 6, So we have urged Titus, who encouraged you, or encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and to encourage you to finish this ministry of giving, since you excel in so many ways in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us. I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. Now, as Paul's talking there about this gracious act of giving, and he talks about the the believers in Jerusalem, we need to understand a little bit of what was going on. The Jewish or Hebraic background believers in Jerusalem, when they turned to faith in Christ, especially by this point in the history of the church, they were no longer considered by the Jewish community to be... uh, well, for lack of a better descriptor, to be Jewish, to be adherents to the Jewish faith. Originally, they were considered followers of the Way, which was a a, a sect of Judaism, um, and that's that's kind of how it was seen. But it didn't take long for that to shift, and and well, they became ostracized by their communities. And we don't really understand what that means in our context here in in the Western world today. But what would happen is, say, if you had a business in a local community and you were friends with people in your local community, you would have been part of a Jewish community. You would have worshipped together at the synagogue. You would have done business together. Your 
your business associates, your customers, your suppliers, all would have been some of the same folks you worshipped with at the synagogue. Well, when you became a follower of Christ and proclaimed Christ as Lord and understood your salvation came through the sacrifice of Christ and the grace given there, then you shifted into a different category and you would have been rejected by your Jewish community. You no longer would have been welcome in the synagogue. The people that were your friends and associates, and in many cases, even your family, would have distanced themselves from you, wanted to have nothing to do with you. Your business associates would have cut off ties. You would see customers going elsewhere to buy their products, suppliers going elsewhere to sell their products, and... In many cases, it meant financial and personal ruin to accept Christ as Savior and be open about that. And yet, that's what the believers in Jerusalem had done. They had been persecuted for it. And they were suffering in many ways, but financially as well. And this was an opportunity for the predominantly Gentile church to show their unity with the church in Jerusalem, to exercise generosity in light of the generosity that God had given them, and reach out to their Christian brothers in Jerusalem with what they had. Now, there are a lot of intricacies to this, and as we look at it, uh, we can see echoes of even the, the second and third chapter of Acts, where you had the believers there in Jerusalem, the first believers responding to what God had done in their lives by looking around and going, hey, this guy over here is in need. I will utilize what God has blessed me with to help him or her at their point of need. And there was a divinely inspired generosity that took place there. The way Acts describes it as they had all things in common. Now, this isn't some sort of a, you know, first century Christian communist utopia. This is an understanding of biblical stewardship, that what's mine isn't really mine. It's been entrusted to me by God to manage in a way that is in line with his will and purpose. And so if my brother or sister in Christ is in need, then I shouldn't let my desire to hang on to something keep me from acting in obedience to Christ. And so that actually becomes a challenge for all of us, as Paul points it out, as a challenge for the churches there in Greece. But in this case, he's using the Macedonian churches as an example. They get it right, even though they don't have much in the way of resources. And then applying it to the church at Corinth, which had an abundance of resources. They were a wealthy community and a wealthy church in most regards. They had the resources to make a profound impact on the ground in Jerusalem. And so Paul was reminding them of this call to generosity that is given to us. As he goes on and praises them there in, say, in verse 7, since you excel in so many ways, In your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us. I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. 
How often do we truly excel in the gracious act of giving? Is generosity something that we practice like we should? I think maybe it's something to ponder. Well, as we get back into the text, in verse 8, Paul says, I am not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. Now, you almost get the sense there that Paul's putting them on the spot, you know. The church at Corinth was reasonably proud. They looked at themselves and they saw that they had quite a bit going for them. The things that they did well, they did exceptionally well. And so for him to present this idea and go, look, I'm not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. What he's saying is, hey, if if you want to be you know, significant about this, if you want to go, hey, look how we nailed this, then you're going to have to pay attention here. Because I'm looking at the churches at Macedonia that have nothing, and they're begging us to let them give more. And then I look at you guys who have abundance, and I'm wondering, what's the difference here? And he's putting that out there really as a challenge to the church at Corinth. He's giving them that opportunity to step up and be the church God is calling them to be. He's not going to browbeat them into it. He's not going to command that they do it. Instead, he's going to show them the contrast and let their conscience work on them. Let the Holy Spirit of God speak to their hearts and give them, if you will, a divine discontent with the way things are, and a desire to change them. That's something that could apply to us as well. As we look at it, I know it's it's trendy in our society to talk about redistribution of wealth, and I'm not going to get into the politics of all that. But the reality is we as believers don't need a government to handle taking care of those in need. God has given that responsibility to us. And really first on that list of caring for those in need is caring for our brothers and sisters in Christ in need. The issue isn't whether we should be doing it. The issue is whether we are too eager to hold on to what God has entrusted us with, as opposed to seeking to aid others with it. Are we practicing generosity? And maybe sometimes looking around at other brothers and sisters in Christ, not to compare ourselves with them, but to see that they are living in that level of generosity, it might challenge us. It might shine a light on our own hearts as we examine ourselves and say, well, maybe my priorities have been a little bit off. Now, I'm sitting here going through this study, speaking to a microphone. But understand, as much as I'm speaking to this microphone and you will be hearing it as you listen to this podcast, I am also speaking to myself. And God's Word speaks to me. These are not easy passages, and they should really challenge all of us at whatever level, economically or anything else, we live at. 
God has called us to generosity, a generosity that is rooted in him and grounded in faith in him. Well, let's get back to the text. In verse 9, he says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Well, what's he saying there? He's using the example of Christ. He's talking about the grace of God that is given to us in Christ, that Christ was in fact God. He left divine glory to be born in a manger, to grow up as a carpenter's kid, to, as he described it when his disciples wanted to follow him, to have no place to lay his head, no place to call home. He humbled himself. He gave up all of that. Why? To give us the gift of salvation. To extend to us his grace. Folks, that is generosity. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. We have gained glory. We have become co-heirs with Christ of the kingdom of God. That is generosity. Now Paul goes on to give some advice to the church at Corinth. In verse 10, he says, here is my advice. It would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. Last year, you were the first who wanted to give, and you were the first to begin doing it. Now, you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. Give in proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. And give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. As Scripture says, those who gather a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. Now, the idea that he is unpacking there is that idea of generosity. And he reminds them, hey, you guys were eager to do this. You were the first ones out of the gate to give. And he mentions a year ago. Well, that would have been the occasion of them receiving that first letter to the church at Corinth. And we see a reference to this contribution being collected over in um, 1 Corinthians 16, the first couple of verses, to where we see that established. So he's referring back to that. So apparently this letter is getting to them about a year after they received the letter found in 1 Corinthians. 
and he's reminding them that generosity doesn't mean give everything, but it means give out of what God has blessed you with to be a blessing to others. And understand that God is in charge, and if he is laying it on the hearts of individuals to give, then should you find yourself in a position of need, God will motivate others to give generously. Now, the key in all this is we have to be listening to God. We have to be willing to respond to the tugging on our heart that God gives us, motivating us to be generous. We need to cultivate a spirit of generosity within our lives, not one of holding on. And then he he references an Old Testament passage out of Exodus there with that quote, those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who had gathered only a little had enough. And of course, the meaning is obvious. Those who gathered a lot had nothing left over because they didn't hoard the excess. And those that were only able to gather a little, well, they had plenty or had enough. Why? Because those that had excess shared what they had. Because if we quit thinking of it as mine and yours and think of all of it as belonging to him, then maybe we're a bit less eager to see how tight we can hold on to it and a little more eager to see how much we can bless the lives of others with it. Well, now Paul shifts from talking to the church at Corinth about their need to give and exercise the the spiritual gift of generosity. Instead, he begins to talk about Titus and a little bit about the mechanism of delivering that gift. Let's hear what he says, starting in verse 16. But thank God he has given Titus the same enthusiasm for you that I have. Titus, welcomed our request that he visit you again. In fact, he himself was very eager to go and see you. We are also sending another brother with Titus. All the churches praise him as a preacher of the good news. Now it would be Titus, not the brother they're sending. He was appointed by the churches to accompany us as we take the offering to Jerusalem a service that glorifies the Lord and shows our eagerness to help. Now, that's quite a praise for Titus to say Titus, you know, has has been acknowledged as a preacher of the good news, but also that the churches, and that's collective, the churches, the churches of Asia Minor, the churches of Greece, have acknowledged and appointed him as being a if you will, the point person on overseeing the delivery and the collection of this offering. This is a guy they trust not only with the word of God, but with the funds of the church. Now, they're not sending Titus alone. He has a couple other guys with him. We don't know who they are. Their names aren't listed. But the principle found there is that Titus, even Titus, who has been given such high praise in these verses, has accountability. For his own protection, he has accountability. Sometimes in church life, I encounter situations where people don't don't like 
levels of accountability, or we talk about, you know, maybe in a classroom that we need two teachers in there, or a teacher and assistant. And sometimes the question will come up, but why don't you trust that teacher? Yes. They wouldn't be a teacher in there if I didn't trust them. But there is accountability and protection when you have multiple individuals undertaking a task. There is no room for accusation. There's no room for temptation to come in. And so it's responsible. And here we see it evidenced in Scripture, that responsibility. And Titus is a man who is held in high regard and without criticism. And he will be traveling with a couple of companions. It goes on in 20. We are traveling together to guard against, well, here Paul explains it, guard against any criticism for the way we are handling this generous gift. We are careful to be honorable before the Lord, but we also want everyone else to see that we are honorable. See, sometimes as we seek leadership roles in the body of Christ, or as we serve in leadership roles in the body of Christ, it's not enough to know that we are honest or upright in what we are doing. Sometimes it is necessary to make known to others what we are doing to show ourselves honest and upright. We should not fear accountability. We should embrace accountability because accountability helps us to show to the world what is true in our lives. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. It shouldn't be seen as something that calls us into question, but gives us a venue through which we can proclaim. Now we're into the last few verses of chapter 8. Starting in verse 22, as Paul's writing, he says, We are also sending with them another of our brothers, who has proven himself many times and has shown on many occasions how eager he is. He is now even more enthusiastic because of his great confidence in you. If anyone asks about Titus, Say that he is my partner who works with me to help you. And the brothers with him have been sent by the churches and they bring honor to Christ. So show them your love and prove to all the churches that our boasting about you is justified. Now, there's a little phrase in there I want to point out. In the end of verse 23, it says, and they bring honor to Christ. A literal translation of that would actually read something more along the lines of, they are the glory of Christ, is literally what the, what the Greek says there. They are the glory of Christ. Imagine that. To be described as someone who is the glory of Christ, boy, that's that's really someone who brings honor to Christ. In other words, these are men who exemplify a Christian character, that what they do points others to Christ. What high praise. 
Now, these individuals have been sent by the churches. Literally, they have been sent. They are apostles. Not in the way we think of Paul or John or James, but still being sent. They're apostles. They have been given a task and sent. And they desire to bring honor to Christ in what they do. And they have an eagerness. As he says here, we are also sending with them another of our brothers who has proven himself many times and shown on many occasions how eager he is. Eager for what? Well, eager to follow Christ. Eager to live out the grace of God in his life. He is now even more enthusiastic because of his great confidence in you. This is a guy that hasn't been the Corinth. And he is so excited and eager to go and to meet them and to see what God is doing there because of what he's heard. Now, has it all been good? Well, we can go back and read 1 Corinthians in the first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians and get the idea. It hasn't been flawless. But God is faithful. And the church at Corinth, it is his. And in spite of the struggles they have, and in spite of the things that they have gotten out of line on and had to be corrected with, they have responded to that correction. They have shown that their heart's desire is to follow God. And so this guy, this nameless individual that the churches have sent to be part of this task. He's excited. Excited to see what God is doing. Excited to be part of what God is doing through this offering. So again, let me read verse 23 to you. If anyone asks about Titus, say that he is my partner who works with me to help you. In other words, he is the guy that comes beside me. He's the guy that helps do the job that I do. He works with me to help you. And the brothers with him have been sent by the churches and they bring honor to Christ. They bring honor to Christ. Literally, they are the glory of Christ. So show them your love and prove to all the churches that our boasting about you is justified. Show that we were right in what we've seen in your lives and what we believe God is doing in your church. Wow, what a different tone than some of the other chapters. Yet this one presents a challenge It holds a standard before the church at Corinth that calls them to action, that calls them to re-examine their views on the world, re-examine where their loyalties lie. Is it their stuff or is it their savior? And then they're given opportunity to put that into action. I think this is a chapter that can speak volumes to us as the modern church. Oh, our context is different, but I'm not so sure the struggles are all that different. I'm pretty sure that the, that the sin that we struggle with, 
that the temptation to take our eyes off of Christ and focus on all the other stuff is really different than what they experienced. Because the more I read scripture, whether it's Old Testament or New, I find that people tend to be people. And the motivations we have, the things that drive us and the things that distract us, don't change all that much. It's sometimes all too easy to find ourselves in scripture and not necessarily where we would like to find ourselves. Well, that rounds out chapter 8. I hope that the call of this chapter impacts your life, that the Word of God has effect in your heart today. Thanks for joining us. Look forward to sharing chapter 9 with you as we continue our journey through this text, seeking to truly grasp Scripture.